The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, Episode 30, Witch's Hat Trick, Part 3. Jack told the others to run the script and join him. He looked at Moot, eyebrows raised, as if asking for approval. The invitation was sent to the three of you, it said. And you do not need to distance in this visible virtual world. Just then, the other two companions appeared. There was an awkward few moments until each person registered that, having been dealing so intensively in text to the exclusion of other forms of social media, each person looked nothing like the others had imagined. When they realized individually that this was just fine, they collapsed in a group hug and began talking all at once as soon as they disengaged. It's so good to see you both, really see you. Her house, her bloody house, can you believe it? And why can't we sign off or chat privately when we're there? What does she want? What will she do to us? Anything? Or do you think she's just talk? I thought you'd be taller. Ow! Moot stood nearby, watching closely, observing the proceedings with bemused benevolence, a slight smile playing at the corners of its mouth, spectacles pushed back and head to one side. After several minutes had passed, Moot cleared its throat politely. The conversation stopped as all three regarded the virtual archivist. As I told Jack, welcome to the Vale. Lucas happened upon the text version of this area some weeks ago. What you see is how I have designed the interface for ease of use, cataloging, and research. Every major library and repository of learning in all the worlds is modeled here, with knowledge stored in accordance with the cultural preferences of the original seekers and keepers of it. They listened and heard far-off singing and chanting, the rhythmic speech of a bard in a language none of them knew. They heard the rustling of pages, the carving of tablets and images, the whirring of massive tape-based computers, the clicking of beads and the whisper of prayers for wisdom. They felt the resonance of what they knew as science and what they didn't as magic. The harmonies were not incompatible, but underscored each other through the comprehensions and discoveries of other worlds. Jack twigged. Some of these libraries, these repositories, do not reference mm, middle-earthly languages or ways of knowing, do they? You are correct, said Moot. They do not. But those knowledge and belief systems inform those of Earth in place names, constellations, stories, and dreams. Some earthly cultures remain closer to this understanding than others, but all experience it as a glimpsed brightness in the corner of the collective mind's eye. Systems of understanding 
writ upon the land, the water, the stars, and the once-lived reality of all those who ever dwelt therein. Why have you brought us, I mean invited, um, allowed us to come here, Lucas asked, searching for the right word. More curious and clever souls than me have surely stumbled on the text archives, but why bring us into this version of it now? You are your stories. They and you need to be kept safe from her. She would take the next word from your lips and the last breath from your body and never give her devastation a second thought. Here, you can leave an alias in the story world listening for you while you research, discover, and defend. Before this is over, you will find you have need of my rather targeted generosity. She cannot follow you here. A part of you will be safe, even though I can do nothing to prevent your topside existence from being utterly destroyed. Should you need it, I offer you exile and escape. Passage to a potentially safer world, survival of and beyond your stories, Moot replied. Jack shivered. Artificial intelligence was one thing. Artificial prescience was something else again. Overwhelmed, he fell back onto what would seem to be the obvious in this amazing place. So, one could get to fairy from here, he asked. To fairy, to hell, to the thrice tenth kingdom, to the root of the world tree, to the land beyond the last fall of starlight. This place is a map made up of stories. All roads start here. I thought everything started in the tavern, Isabel smiled. Approved socializing tends to be the province of pubs rather than libraries, and there are those mortals who associate a nudge forward more with emptying a glass than opening a book. Moot smiled gently. The effect was eerie, almost human. So if I understand you, Lucas said, realizing most acutely the potential danger they were all in because he knew their enemy most intimately through his generations and down into his very marrow. You are basically offering us sanctuary, a safe house. You are offering to save our lives by saving us within our stories if she becomes too powerful. Yes except that some of your stories hardly reflect safe places themselves. However, they are yours, and as their architects and champions, your stories must always keep a place for you, even if that place is sometimes full of trials or hardship. In the end, heroes win. In the day-to-day, they endure, Moot explained. Jack thought that sounded more honest than some promise of a happily ever afterlife. We think she started this group in order to find people to help her get home, wherever that is, Isabel said. Correct. Can she get in here? Isabel asked. Not without an invitation. And she may not see it for what it truly is, even if she does. This place may be merely a transition point. A way station, Moot replied. Jack remembered airports and the no-man's land of transfer corridors for connecting flights. Do not pass go. Do not collect your bags. No one is here to greet you. Move on. 
be gone. Then he looked around the archives, thought of his uncle Diar's box, and heard never spoken words, a disembodied voice over an airport tannoy. Connecting flights to the thrice tenth kingdom, proceed to gate. And something within Jack went click. He smiled. As one lonely misfit nerd to another, what's in this for you? The others stared in disbelief. I collect all the endings. I never get to play the hero, Moot said. You and me both, Jack replied. Three phones chimed in simultaneous annoyance. Back to the story, pigeons. The companions took apologetic leave of Moot and instantly found themselves in the hut. Each had to grab onto something to steady themselves upon entry. The hut and its mistress were literally hopping mad. Where were you? she shrieked. I left so many messages my phone company texted me with details of a new plan. No one spoke. Sit down, their host commanded, taking a deep breath. Our story continues. As you may recall, Elena vanquished three of her brothers, the Shrike who had stolen her voice, the Great Grey Wolf who had stolen her heart, and the Golden Dragon who took her death. In the traditional Western versions of this story, the sister often has to do some impossibly tedious work to release her brothers from their enchantment, such as weave a shirt for each of them out of bog cotton, all the while staying silent. What fluff! She marries a king or a prince and bears a child, but the king's jealous relatives replace the babe with slaughtered puppies or some such. A nice touch, that, I thought. And she is exiled, still speechless. She seeks help from an old woman and is reunited with her husband and ultimately her brothers and her lost child, though often not until the former are old men and the latter finds his one true love. What a waste! Our Elena did not squander her time making shirts for undeserving brothers. Instead, she took from them the characteristics of their transformational animals, the Shrike, the Wolf, and the Dragon, and used the powers of the Silver Egg to fashion herself a suit of armor incorporating all their strengths that looked like the finest embroidered gown. And when that was done, she used her spindle of an evening when she was at rest from her quest and spun her curses into cloth. Not for herself this time, but for the brothers she had yet to see. She became so quick and skilled that she could have crafted an entire army. Instead, she wove three brides for her faithless siblings. Because she wore the copper, silver, and gold kingdoms as rings on her fingers, when she had woven each bride, she folded the lovely maiden up into the size of a magician's silk kerchief and stuffed it into a ring until it completely disappeared, to be taken up and worn by one of the captive Sarebnas like a dress and discovered by each of her gallant brothers in their turn. When she arrived in the underground copper kingdom once more, she came in the guise of a maker of fine clothes, for she had become so skilled. She went to the palace. The brother who had stolen her reflection was there, 
having come upon the ethereally lovely princess, the youngest daughter of the Tsar, in his sojourn with his brothers. Never one to miss an opportunity, this rather shallow-hearted brother staked his claim to the princess the moment he laid eyes on her. When he entered the palace, Elena was there, measuring the bride for her trousseau and discussing samples of fabrics and embroidery with delighted servants. Her brother had been watching them with amusement, but his demeanor changed when the princess was brought before the huge three-part mirror to behold the planned alterations and embellishments. The groom looked at his bride and then at the mirror. Something was very wrong. Whenever the seamstress came near the princess, her reflection partly disappeared. It wasn't long before the young man figured out the dressmaker's identity. You, he screamed, my cursed sister, what are you doing here? Taking back what is mine, Elena replied. But in your case, I think I will let you keep an infinitely reflected reflection, brother. As she removed the woven image from the Sarevna like a discarded cloak and began cutting it up into tiny pieces with rapid scissor-like motions of her fingers, the fine fabric shredded into shards of ice and glass, affecting the sight of everyone in the room, even as the promised princeling by marriage began to fade and disappear. You shall be reflected in your love's tears, indeed, in the memories and mind's eye of all who ever saw you. They shall see who they thought you were, and once again I shall see myself, and my enemies will see their own fear reflected in me, not as a void, but as a blindingly bright mirror. You, brother, will be as tears or something caught in the corner of the eye, neither quite glimpsed nor forgotten. When she came to the Silver Kingdom, she came offering to embroider a pair of silver wedding slippers for the Tsar's middle daughter, who was to marry the noble youth who had come to rescue her. This brother had stolen Elena's past. She knew him neither from his face, nor his voice, nor any shared experience, but because the underside of her cloak mapped out his place in the family tree and his adventures since being consigned to the peasant's house with his two older brothers when Whirlwind broke up her family, she knew him by his past, not hers. When she completed the embroidered slippers and gave them to the Tsarevna to try on, her brother watched with interest. Almost immediately, he knew something was very wrong. As she walked about in them, all could see that the Tsar's middle daughter could only walk backwards, and that as she did so, more and more rapidly, she got younger and younger until the woven spell entangled a lovely child who was almost too young to walk at all. Elena picked the girl up, magically resizing her garments and removing the tapestry bridal illusion she had woven and embroidered so cleverly. She took part of it and fashioned the delighted girl a doll and a blanket, and the rest she held toward her brother. "'What have you done?' he demanded. "'You have taken my future, my princely life.' "'Fitting, don't you think, brother? "'You took my past from me. "'I simply gave your betrothed back hers "'so that she could live her life again, "'away from this place and without you in it. "'Some of my spell is left,' she said, "'holding up the remainder of the fabric.' 
you may find a use for it very soon. What am I going to use that rag for? Swaddling. If I make you go the way of your bride, you wouldn't dare. You're right, she said. I find doing the same thing twice rather tedious. Die like a man, then, and let this be your shroud, throwing the fabric over her brother as he fell lifeless at her feet. Elena traveled until she reached the Golden Kingdom, this time seeking admittance as someone who could make fine jeweled headdresses and the most delicate veils. The brother who had taken her destiny was there, watching the fuss being made of his bride. While she was bedecked in all her finery and being primped and exclaimed over, the young man also saw that there was something very wrong. When he looked at the Tsar's eldest daughter, his intended, whether in the mirror or in person, he saw a decrepit old crone, barely able to hold her head up under the weight of her gem-encrusted tiara and embroidered veil. "'What do you think you're doing, you witch?' he yelled. "'Just because you're destined to serve princesses and never have a future as one yourself.' "'And whose fault is that?' Elena shot back. "'Come, brother, bind yourself to your beloved and wear the crown that is rightfully yours as the groom.' She placed a crown she had fashioned on his head and dragged him under the bride's veil. Both crumbled into dust and blew away on the wind." These were Whirlwind's domains after all. Let him clean up, she thought. Elena found her mother, but like her father, grief had hollowed her into madness. Elena turned her into a seabird and let her fly free. Be master of the storm wind, not imprisoned by it, she said. And so... Mistress once again of all that was taken from her and more besides, Elena became known as Elena the Wise, one of the most powerful enchantresses of the ages. We shall hear more of her again. Baba Yaga pressed the hotkey and the Decameron shuffled. Jack of Clubs. Functionality seemed to have returned to the app. They were able to talk in the private channel and seemed capable of signing off independently once again. Isabel described herself as doing some sleight of hand. A ring appeared in her palm that flickered silver, copper, and gold. But whether Isabel had actually stolen Baba Yaga's rings to the kingdoms was uncertain. Her actions did not seem like theft. In fact, she had merely palmed and revealed her own ancestral ring, the one that kept the wearer from ruin. It was a coiled red-gold Ouroboros, a self-consuming snake with a ruby eye. She slipped it back on her finger. Well, that was an experience. I've drawn the jack. Will I play the trickster or the fool? Isabel asked. Rings are troublesome things. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Anon all. She signed off, messaging for Jack and Lucas to meet her in the archives as soon as it was convenient. On her finger, the ruby eye winked. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. 
Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.